Hello and welcome to Against the Law. This week we're talking about hospitals in a sort of splint uh, episode from our previous pandemic podcast. In case you didn't notice, that was a dad joke about splints, because splints are something you find in hospitals. I'm Barney and I'll be nursing you through healthcare institutions in ancient Mesopotamia today, so listen out for my Babylonian bell, which signals that my bedpan is full and an ancient Near Eastern fact is about to spill over. Joining me is Xenia, who will be telling us about medics and their practice in ancient Rome. If the dishy Emperor Hadrian comes up, she'll be needing a hospital herself and will hear a swoon as she collapses onto the floor. <sighs> Scalpel, forceps, ancient knowledge. Backing us up today is Meg, the new doctor on the ward, who's got insider info on your chances of survival if you ended up in an ancient Greek sick house. If you hear a don't sound, do not adjust your radio. It's no mistake. Meg has just dropped a mention of the soothing drake of ancient poetry, Homer. Bringing us all together is Flo, who is sick as hell without actually being sick as hell. Flo has so far shied away from a personal sound effect, but she certainly tuned into our major noise going against the law. If you hear the classic gavel sound, that means we're dispelling a myth or misconception about the ancient world. That's our team for the week, armed with medicinal facts and surgical wit. So without further ado, let's get into the topic at hand. As rates of coronavirus infection continue to drop, what's been in the news about hospitals this week? Well, they're recording far fewer um, coronavirus admissions, so yay! Hooray. <laughs> There's some hope Woo-hoo. coming. Death rates going down, because um, they have been so overwhelmed. Um, and we've also had uh doc medics denied as high a pay rise as they probably deserve at the moment in the budget this week so looks like we got hospitals full of people and medics in particular roles angry do we have any hospitals in the ancient world short answer is no (laughs) the end (laughs) roll credits yeah well there we go that's our first against the law no hospitals in the ancient world until the fourth century AD, um, which is when the Roman Empire becomes Christian, and then we start to get um, sort of hospitals as a Christian institution coming about. But before that, um, it's uh, private healthcare, or uh, you could have sort of healthcare provided for you in very specific circumstances. Like um, if you were in the army, there will be army medics uh, attached to each cohort uh, and they would they would take care of anyone who was wounded. Um, but also uh, you could get health care if you were um, enslaved on a large estate, uh, usually doing sort of manual labour in the fields, agricultural work. And are they hospitals like we think of hospitals as in like different wards and beds and different doctors with different specialities? Um, is this for the Christian ones or for the ones that are like uh, in armies or on estates? Oh, the Christian ones. So, yeah, it sort of depends on um, on where you were and which one you were in. There do seem to be like three different types and one's more sort of like a, a guest house or an inn. And another one is more palliative care. And uh, another version is more sort of um, treating like emergency situations um 
the the line between an inn and a hospital was pretty blurry all the way through the ancient world if you think about like the story of the good samaritan the samaritan drops the injured man off at an inn and then you know donates some money towards towards his health care which he would then get privately but um yeah this sort of idea i mean the word hospitium uh is where we get hospital from but that actually means like guest house or, or place for people who were visiting to sleep rather than necessarily somewhere they where they could get medical attention just like a nap like a therapeutic nap <laughs> yeah. I, I i take those quite frequently i have to say so it's good to know that i'm i'm you know along the right lines yeah a nap and a bowl of hot food was like yeah pretty much the ultimate medicine that's like my aim for every weekend I quite I mean I quite like the idea of this um this hospital being more of a sort of like a holistic retreat that you know you might pay for now like chicken soup for the soul and go and have a nice sleep and feel better the next day that's not really what I associate hospital with I see I like many people's experiences of hospital is sort of revolving around medicine treatment surgery I want to know what surgery was like in the ancient world, because I think there's a, I might be going against the law on this one, but I think there's a rumour that Julius Caesar lent his name to caesarean sections because his mother was allegedly the first woman in the ancient world to have a caesarean operation when he was born. And I think that is false. That is false. She wasn't the first woman to have um, caesarean section in the ancient world. Oh, I actually think um, Asclepius, who is one of the gods of, of healing in the ancient world, I think he might have been born by Caesarean section in some accounts of the myth, but maybe not called Caesarean section, but that he was sort of cut out of his mother's womb. But maybe it's more that is 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 Caesarean, does that come from the word Caesar? And it just it's just not that he was the first one or is it completely a coincidence? It comes from the word Caesare, which is to cut. So it's the idea of cutting cutting the child out that makes more sense so in terms of surgery i know for a fact that in the ancient world there were was the equipment to do surgery was there anything any quite gruesome surgeries or procedures that might have happened in the ancient world that we'd be horrified by now there's so in the um sanctuaries of Asclepion, who is the god of healing um, there's these sanctuaries, which are, I guess, sort of hospitals. We've already established there weren't really hospitals, but they're, they're places you can go to get medical treatment. Um, but it's all very religious healing. So it's all about the idea that the god Escapius directs the healing of the patient. Um, they did do some surgery there, which, and we have some amazingly detailed accounts of this. There's these sort of marble boards from um, the Asclepion in Epidaurus from about 350 BC. And it's these descriptions which tell us that they probably did do well they definitely did do surgery and they probably used some kind of anesthetic because the accounts of the surgeries are quite grim and could not really have been done without any anesthetic my favorite is cure 29 which is gorgias of heraclea and it says um in a battle he had been wounded by an arrow in the lung for a year and a half and he filled 67 basins with pus and <laughs> while he was sleeping in the temple um he also sees the god heal him and then when he wakes up the arrow has been uh, cut out of his lung so that's a, a evidence of surgery in the ancient world that they had the ability to cut into this guy's lung and pull out the arrow and deal with his 67 basins of pus um but there it's 
probable that this happened under anaesthetic, probably opium. At Epidaurus, there's a, a carving on the wall of a poppy flower, which might suggest that they did use opium to allow for that kind of surgery. Wow, that's wow. gross. Thank mm. you. What do you I mean, do with 67 buckets of pus? I don't know. Like, surely that's the major medical miracle there, that they managed to safely dispose of that. <laughs> Oh, utterly grim. I suppose they didn't have a biohazards bin in the in the ancient world. That's gross. <laughs> but it sounds like it was a lot more sophisticated than we might suspect. You know, sort of people in ancient times just hacking into each other. Um, but it sounds like they had, you know, fairly serious knowledge of what was going on within the body. I think at this point they they didn't really know what was going on in terms of anatomy, kind of anatomical knowledge of the body comes a bit later, um, in more kind of uh, later in, in ancient Greek history. Um, at this point, it's more that they're they're removing foreign objects from the body is the main kind of route for solving things. But they also had um, herbal treatments. Like we were saying earlier, they, they really knew the importance of a good bath and a peppermint tea. Those are two major treatments that you can get in the sanctuaries of Asclepian. And like, honestly, still a great, a great thing to do if you're feeling a bit stressed. So they were quite kind of holistic places in terms of the medicine that they offered. There was a lot of emphasis on a sort of health lifestyle and on your spiritual needs um, at the sanctuaries of Asclepius. I really like the idea that actually we're not very different now if we're if we're feeling under the weather or a bit stressed having a nap a bath a peppermint tea to sort of unwind and take care of yourself that's just self-care now isn't it? Mm, yeah although they also did have snakes slithering freely around the sanctuaries and that personally for me isn't isn't self-care really just being... no okay I take it back I take it back <laughs> they're so similar in so so many ways and then you hear about the snakes and you're like no that's not for me to be fair if you've ever held a snake they're quite calming they're very heavy they're like a weighted blanket in sort of reptile <laughs> form and they and they sort of just lie on you and um they're very warm and they're mm. not they're not sticky or slimy or anything. They're quite nice. So, I mean, that would be quite nice. I'd, I'd take, that's probably going to be a treatment in about two or three years, isn't it? If you're feeling anxious, pay £80 an hour for someone to dump a snake on you. I love that, the ancient weighted blanket. It's also, did anyone else at uni sometimes have, like, stress donkeys and pigs who come to visit to try and calm everyone down instead of just investing in, like, mental health support? They just sometimes bring a donkey to campus. So maybe Excuse me? <laughs> what did no one else have this at uni no <laughs> are, you, are you sure you didn't take some poppy seeds <laughs> I'm pretty sure we used to I, I went to uni at Exeter Exeter University and sometimes they would just be like oh guys for your mental health we've brought a donkey to campus for you to stroke um oh I wish yeah we did yeah I think we had puppies one time well, they actually did also have dogs in the sanctuaries of Asclepius. Both dogs mm. are sacred dogs and snakes are the symbol of Asclepius. So, Barney, are there any animals used in medicine in the Near East? Uh, well, I did come across a remedy involving many different parts of a goat, but I'm not sure the goat was living, unfortunately. When you say many different parts, <laughs> which parts? Um... Oh, like, you know, blood from the goat's eye. Um, oh. I could, and, you know, blood for a part of the pupil. They were doing quite a lot of dissecting of this. This is a late Babylonian therapeutic text. So actually, um, it's how to cure epilepsy. 
um, or to treat epilepsy at least. Um, and yeah, you take a young male goat and you whisper into its ear on the right and the left, oh, evil, evil. And then you slaughter it and then you start taking it apart and making a sort of ointment out of uh, out of all the parts of the goat. That reminds me of Harry Potter when um, Snape tells Harry to use a beezle or the beezle is like the ultimate cure-all. And that's isn't a beezle? Bezoar is a hairball, isn't it, from the stomach of a goat, I think. Yeah. Ooh. Mm. Actually, my, my mind went to uh, The Witch. There's a horror film that came out oh, a few yeah. years ago. Um, I love The Witch very much. Uh, I think it's a really, really brilliant film. And it's about a puritanical family out uh, colonial times in, in the States. And they all sort of drive each other up the wall, basically worrying about a witch in the woods. Um, and there's a goat in that called Black Philip. And uh, he whispers, he whispers to one of the children, uh, wouldst thou like the taste of butter? It's very creepy, but uh, this is kind of the Babylonian payback, whispering, oh, evil, evil in the ears of the goat. <laughs> Finally getting the goat back. <laughs> <laughs> you could say you really got his goat. Oh, oh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm trying, guys. So they don't like goats, but they do like snakes and dogs in the ancient world. Yes, so the snake is is still actually the Asclepius's rod, the rod of Asclepius with the the snake wrapped around a, a rod, is actually still the universal symbol of healthcare. Um, and this is sort of going against the law because people often get it wrong. But there's a different rod, which is the the staff of Hermes, which has two snakes wrapped around it in a kind of double helix formation and little wings at the bottom. And people often think that is the universal symbol of healthcare, but it's not. It's the rod of Asclepius, which is one snake wrapped around um, a rod and you'll still see that on kind of nhs buildings or ambulances and stuff like that so we still very much use the snake as a symbol of healthcare but we don't use them in hospitals or gps which personally <laughs> i'm glad of are there any interesting sort of parallels between things that we still struggle with that used to happen i mean you mentioned epilepsy barney people have always had epilepsy we we will probably always have epilepsy as humans but were there any like weird diseases or weird illnesses that people had that we probably wouldn't get now does anyone know what dropsy is so it's edema it's just an edema it's a build-up of fluid the only reason why I ask is I found when I was um, researching for this, I found an omen that suggests that if a physician was on his way to um, a potential patient's home and he saw a multicoloured pig on the way, it would be an omen that the patient was suffering from dropsy and he should avoid them at all costs. Can you imagine Can you imagine turning up an A&E and you've got a swelling in your leg and the doctor shows up and says, great news, I didn't see any colourful pigs. And you'd be like, okay, are you not going to run any tests, doctor? No, 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 no. I know, because I didn't see any funny, funny coloured pigs. You're all right. I mean, how common was it to find a multicoloured pig? I mean, I'm thinking that's like, isn't that like a foolproof prediction? <laughs> <laughs> you will never see a multicoloured pig. <laughs> Therefore. Um, if no, you, well, if I, you I, see I, a blue pig with a pink Mohican then they will not have dro <laughs> they will have dropsy so, so be careful. no one had dropsy basically <laughs> from what i understand and this is this is separate to anything from mesopotamia um ancient pigs were generally more colorful than the sort of pink pig that comes to mind when we think of them now um 
there's a breed uh, called Oxford Sandium Blacks, which are sort of caramel coloured with black spots. They're also called plum pudding pigs. Um, and they're quite hairy as well. And the people who breed them say that they're more similar to what ancient pigs were like before they'd been bred to be all sort of pink and perfect. Oh, so you mean like a saddleback where it's got like different... I like saddleback pigs. They're my favourite. I just I just wanted to say saddleback pig because they're my favourite. Say it again. Saddleback pig. <laughs> Ooh. So you get temples as a really important source of, of yeah, basic healthcare. Um, and that seems to sort of have a pattern right through into the temples of Isclapius, doesn't it, Meg? Yeah, definitely. And they were mostly free to enter. There's, I think there's one um, sanctuary uh, which did charge because you had to throw gold or silver into a spring to get in. It was a kind of entrance fee. But most of them let you in and you got your treatment for free. And then the way you paid for it or the way you showed your gratitude more was by a, making a sacrifice or a dedication to Asclepius. Um, and there's one account of a guy, I think it's Harmon, um, who's cured of his blindness by Asclepius in one of the sanctuaries. Um, but then because he doesn't give a sacrifice, he then gets re-blinded. So there's a sort of, you have to pay back in some way, but not necessarily financially. Imagine that if you didn't pay for treatment now, and it was, I don't know, you had a gallbladder removed, and you were having a private surgery, and you refused to pay, and they get the gallbladder back out. This is where those 67 bowls of pus come in handy. They probably kept them around in, in case you didn't pay, just to put it all back in. Oh, <laughs> that is horrible. That's really interesting, Meg. Um, access to healthcare was definitely a sort of a public, uh, I don't want to say right, that's too strong a word, but an option, let's say, uh, because healthcare was kind of distributed by the temple, um, where these kind of doctor priests almost um, would be able to go to the homes of people who were suffering. As I mentioned with this physician going on a house visit, in, in ancient Mesopotamia, the hospital was very much your own home. Uh, doctors came to you as as the sort of the standard um, method of delivering healthcare. Uh, so there were no there were no dedicated buildings. Um, but we know from the Codex Hammurabi, which is one of the earliest law codes, there's a few laws that govern the payment of doctors in the old Babylonian period. So we're talking about 1800 BC here, and they say you know if if a physician carries out a particular procedure, then he will be owed a certain amount of money in shekels. Um, so uh, interestingly, it actually changes due to the class of the person. Um, so if it's a, a sort of a prime citizen uh, for a basic operation, they'll get 10 shekels. Um, if it's a, a common, a commoner, uh, it'll be five shekels. And then if it's a slave, two. That's cool. Because so we, you, you get this sort of theme of there being provision by sort of state or religion of, um, of healthcare, but you still have to pay for it. So um, by the fourth century, like Christian hospitals, they were they were fairly revolutionary because you didn't have to pay for it. They were fully funded either by the state or by um, sort of aristocratic philanthropic individuals, you know, wealthy, wealthy people who wanted to contribute back to, to society or felt that sort of religious obligation to do that. Um, and but yeah, before that, I think um, Tiber Island in the middle of the Tiber River in Rome, that's a really interesting example of sort of healthcare through history, because um, there's a there's quite a famous Isclepion or temple of I to Isclepius on Tiber Island. Um, so again, that's where you'd have snakes, priests, beds possibly some surgery um but then on top of that in the medieval period it was turned into a church which also had a hospital on it oh wow so it kind of changes but keeps to its 
healthcare routes. Can we do, can we talk about like military healthcare? I know we sort of touched on it. We can talk about Homer's Iliad. Don't! Which is such an interesting source for ancient healthcare and kind of field hospitals and that sort of thing, because it's obviously a text which is about it's about the Trojan War. It's about this enormous battle between the Greeks and the Trojans. And there are a lot of injuries, um, hundreds of injuries, all different types. And someone has done this really cool statistical analysis of what happens if you get wounded in the Iliad. Um, so if you get a sort of traumatic wound in the Iliad, your likelihood of dying is 77.6 percent. There's a 77.6 fatality rate for traumatic wounds. Pretty, pretty bad news for someone in the Iliad, but also genital wounds. There are 12 genital wounds in the Iliad and 11 of them are fatal. So if you get if you get hit in, in that mm. area, you've got a 91 percent chance of dying. So that is bad news for, oh. for a, an Iliadic soldier. Um, but there's also some sort of field surgery. So there's a guy called um, Machaon and his brother Podolirius, who are actually in myth the sons of Asclepius. And they are um, they both lead an army in, in for the Greeks in the Trojan War and they perform field surgery. And again, we could possibly say that this might be something approaching a hospital. There would be kind of places in the Greek camp, presumably in, in, in the city of Troy as well, where you could go and be healed in the war. Wow, that's amazing. It doesn't sound to me like in in an Iliadic field hospital, you'd have any trouble diagnosing what the cause of a spear wound was. Uh, but I think looking at diagnosis in the ancient world is an interesting thing because they don't have the same modern theory of, of disease and, and illness that we do now. I mean, for me, at least in, in the ancient Near East, there's always an eagerness to explain it as something to do with a god or goddess. It approaches a bit more being like divination and they're they're relying on a lot of religious knowledge to identify which god might be causing which particular uh, disease or illness. And so the names, their names for the diseases were often just Hand of Ishtar, uh, the, the war goddess or something like that. And that was that was what was causing your illness. And do you see the same thing in uh, in Greece or Rome? You definitely see the same thing in Greece. Um, the sanctuaries of Escapia, of Escapius, were operated on the assumption that uh, gods caused disease and that therefore gods could heal disease. And it's only really when we get to Hippocrates um, who suggests that diseases are caused by natural causes. So that might be the imbalance of the humours, the bile and the phlegm. Uh, I find it interesting that you've spoken about humours as being like a Greco-Roman thing, because I've always associated that really strongly with like a medieval thing that you might find in England or Europe, your humours being out of balance. So if you're a woman with too much blood, you're you're very hot tempered and you need to chill out. And maybe that's, you know, another use for the 67 bowls of pus. You can you can level it out with some phlegm or something. I don't know. Well, yeah, I, I suppose this is the thing about history. It all sort of ties in together. And especially when you get um, the the Renaissance, this sort of rediscovery of ancient texts through, um, which actually comes through the Islamic world, um, suddenly you get this resurgence of uh, not just ancient literature, but also ancient techniques. Um, and it's afforded this sort of respect that maybe maybe it shouldn't have at that point because it is so old and you'd have, you'd have thought someone would be thinking more creatively or more analytically about medicine, but but they trust what, what the ancients came up with. For this particular example, they were trusting something extremely ancient because the, those same colours, again, they didn't use the word humours, but they were equally important to the Mesopotamian uh, practice of, of healthcare. Um, the colours that they mention specifically are like red, yellow, black and white, which I suppose we could see as similar to the blood and 
bile and uh, phlegm and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, there were some pretty pretty poor omens. Uh, if <laughs> the one the one that I pulled out that I really like, which I think to be honest, you don't need a modern medical genius to understand, um, is from this Babylonian diagnostic handbook, which is how they're doing their diagnoses, and it's got thousands and thousands of these kind of omens and. Uh, a good one for the colours and how persistent these are through history is that if his testicles are black, he will die. <laughs> to be fair, it's not a great sign, is it? If your testicles are black. I really like omens in things and like in general uh, behaviour that you wouldn't normally associate with like a science or a medicine. And I think that in the UK there's been evidence uh, in Roman in Roman times that uh, a cure for being generally malaised or unwell was to wear a necklace that says abracadabra on it. So it's like the equivalent of me going, God, I've got a flu. I better get my earrings that say hocus pocus on them immediately. Yeah, and it's this link of like medicine to the supernatural that you get with the healthcare in the temples that you can't really sort of distinguish one from the other they're they're both very much tied in together it's not like one's thought of as logical and the other one's thought of as illogical they're all together um so yeah I mean you've, you've got things like lead curse tablets in in the Roman baths at, at Bath and people people were really terrified that they would be cursed because they believed in the power of this sort of this piece of lead with some writing on they believed that that could have real real consequences in the world so in order to try and um, mitigate that they might wear something like a charm um, I mean there was an absolute roaring trade going not just in in these little models of of your afflicted body part that you could then present at the temple but also with stuff that you could buy and wear um, to to try and make you immune from that I think the interesting thing as well with stuff like the curse tablets and the relationship between healthcare and objects is that I think for especially the sanctuaries of Asclepius which I've mentioned a lot we now kind of think that a lot of it will have been effective, but partly because of the placebo effect. The placebo effect is like it really works, you know, even in modern medicine. Um, and I think the like the way people would turn up, be kind of looked after, get their peppermint tea, have their bath and then get told that they were going to be healed. That would genuinely do a lot of good. And I think maybe something similar is happening with stuff like curse tablets, that if you think you've been cursed, everything suddenly seems like it's bad luck and it's because of the curse rather than just like, oh, I fell over today. Thinking of the baths at Bath absolutely cracks me up. Can you imagine going for a swim and then you stub your toe on something and you go go and fish around into the water to find out what it is? And it's a tablet that says, Senya is such a horrible cow. I hope she gets black testicles. <laughs> <laughs> and you'd be like, wow, okay, well, I, I'm going to do a cursed tablet now and wear my abracadabra necklace. <laughs> Maybe it's like, did you ever do swimming lessons or you have to dive for those like weighted things? Maybe they were oh, yeah. learning to dive by like, okay, down you go, Timmy, look for the curse tablets. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what's this? What does this one say? It says, our swimming instructor is a massive, yes, I'll take that now, Timmy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for that one, Timmy. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I've got to say, underlying all of this is the word for the the phenomenon that we're describing, like using an object to as a, as a ward or a remedy a remedy against a bad luck or a curse, um, is a really really good word. Um, that is, it's an apotropaic object. Ooh, I like what that. But I don't. Uh, I don't know. I think it sounds Greek to me. Yeah. Um, not not in the Shakespeare way. In the actual, it sounds Greek way. <laughs> 
It actually sounds Greek. <laughs> um, apotropaic. I don't know if anyone can pass that. Break down the word. Uh, apo, so like away from. And oh, it's from trepane to turn. So turning away, like deflecting evil stuff. Yeah. Great. So the best modern example of an apotropaic symbol is uh, the evil eye, the, the blue eye that you see all over the Mediterranean um, oh, as, yeah. as a ward against bad luck. And that's obviously one with continuity right into the ancient world. I do. I quite like that a lot. I like the idea that you can get blinged up as well to be healthy. Uh, and it makes me think of certain things that we might see nowadays, like there are those mm-hmm. copper bracelets that will stop you getting travel sick that some people think are a placebo. I, this is it raises a really interesting point, though, because even in the modern day, we have alternative medicine, right, or, or ways that don't have any, uh, you know, scientific medical basis, but that people believe will help them. And, and it, it brings up the question of kind of efficacy versus like logic. Like it's not necessarily, you know, we're talking about all these strange like parts of a goat being used to cure epilepsy. Uh, like it might not be scientific in the modern sense, but there might be a logic to it or a rationale. Uh, if you understand it in the context of religion or I don't know, in the case of copper, like you think it might have some resonance that would be helpful to you. Um, even though it's not scientific, there may be some kind of logic behind it. Again, with the etymology, isn't Xenia, is this right? Placebo is just, I will please in Latin, placebo. So yeah. what, that's what we really want is just, we want something that pleases us or helps us. Absolutely. I, th- I think the other thing is like, you know, we, we have come very far, I think, in recent medicine, but there are still definitely things that are worth researching and that we don't understand. And, and maybe, um, you know, there might be something about copper that does help in, in a, uh, maybe it needs a little bit of treatment or a refined form. But it always reminds me of like how salicylic acid, which is the key component of aspirin, that occurs naturally in willow bark. And so um, people would prescribe willow bark as like a um a, a painkiller um but they don't didn't necessarily understand the science behind it and now we do i've got a book that contains traditional sri lankan medicine and a lot of it has the same chemical compounds as mainstream treatment in say the uk for different illnesses and ailments but they're getting it from tree sap instead of from a pill there's been a tried and tested method in the ancient world that that actually works like maybe rubbing bits of goat parts on you is actually legitimately a great cure (laughs) sometimes it also seems like they were kind of just looking in the wrong place basically um i mentioned about trying to find the god who was behind a particular disease you know the, the religious cause of it let's say with these babylonian physicians but they were also applying bandages and stuff like that so they thought they could cure it in a religious method but they were still treating um these symptoms in in a sort of helpful way anyway um so i think it's kind of easy to look at pre pre-modern medicine and basically say they were barking up the wrong tree completely but um as as Zenny has pointed out if they were barking up the willow tree then they might have been onto something good oh very good very good (laughs) thank you that's so interesting i think it's so much the same in in the sanctuaries that there there are some um kind of carvings which show like people being healed by a snake representing asclepius and it's interesting because you can kind of you can see what like the snake is almost 
it's representing the god, but it's showing you what the priests would have done as as surgeons. So there's again this kind of elision of religion and medicine, but at the heart of it is actually people trying to do logical medicine, but just calling it something else. So it's maybe that that separation between the two is actually kind of unhelpful when we think about the ancient world. If that's not a classic against the law message, I don't know what is. So what has everyone learnt today? What are we going to take away about ancient hospitals? I love that I've learnt that I can curse someone by writing it on a lead slate and chucking it in my local swimming pool. I really enjoyed learning about the uh, buildings on Tyre Island that help you kind of tread through some of the history of healthcare in ancient Rome from a temple to a church with a hospital attached to it. Um, So yeah, I really enjoyed that. I learned that I should be looking out for colourful pigs whenever I try and self-diagnose myself on the internet. (laughs) Yeah, I also like the uh, multiple functions of a goat when it comes to healthcare. Well, thanks everyone for listening to this week's Against the Law about all things medical and hospitable in the ancient world. Uh, I hope you'll join us next week where we're celebrating the start of British summertime by talking about travel in the ancient world in our episode on Ancient Globetrotters. See you next time. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Against the Law. If you enjoyed it, Hit follow or subscribe so you'll get all our future episodes in your feed. We love hearing from you, so please get in touch with suggestions and feedback on Twitter at Against Law, that's L-O-R-E, or email Against the Law Podcast at gmail.com. Bye for now.